people running federal contractors have to forecast their annual business, no less than any other CEO. What makes the federal market unique is that the specific size is known year after year. IT services company Uninet and the law firm Cone Resnick ask contractors about their biggest challenges. Joining me with what they are, Uninet Vice President Kim Coster. Ms. Coster, good to have you with us. Uh, good to be here, Tom. Thank you very much. This is something you've done for several years now, is to kind of take the pulse of the contractor industry. Absolutely. Christine Williamson uh, from Cone Resnick and I started doing this in 2017. That would have been our maiden voyage into uh, into the gauge. And aside from whether people, you know, are optimistic or not optimistic, they have specific challenges that turn up in the survey. And given the uncertain appropriations situation, which is somewhat separate from the spending situation, because even if there's no appropriations and they go to a CR, they're spending. What are contractors worried about going into 23, the end of 23 and going into 24? Well, we continue to have contractors worried about recruiting and retention. That's been going on now for several years. But the biggest project management challenge that we've seen out in the marketplace is really forecasting resources. So to me, that becomes really the biggest challenge that our contractors are having. What is it they're trying to forecast? They're trying to really see when they need those resources, You know, when those resources need to start work, what skill set those resources need to be, and making sure that HR and the folks that are, are uh, recruiting uh, have the ability to place those people on those projects so that those projects become on time and on budget. Right. So the talent acquisition problem becomes really, that's the resource that they're worried about. Correct. That's correct. I mean, if you're a hardware reseller, then you just get the hardware you need as you need it and you order it and resell it. But in the case of putting people on a job, that's a little subtler of a problem, isn't it? It is. And you know, Tom, it really all starts back with pipeline forecasting. We did a deep dive this year on on forecasting, and we did it in eight different areas. And one of the most interesting things that came out of this was that pipeline forecasting was very important, yet it didn't have the accuracy of all the other forecasts. And that pipeline forecast is telling us what resources we're going to need in the future, what projects we're going to get. So as a growth engine, the pipeline is tremendously important, and it really shows the trajectory overall of your business. Right. You even have a formula for it, a measure, a metric you've devised, probability of wins times the probability of actually going ahead with it mm-hmm. equals the probability of award. So you have to know what you're going to win, and that begins with what should I bid on. So tell us more about that formula. If you're looking at what you're going to bid on, you're going to be able to see, um, hey, what are my differentiators? What makes me better than company A, B, or C? So what is the probability that I'm going to get that contract, uh, that I'm going to win that bid? And then the probability of, of go is whether or not the federal government is actually going to fund it. So when I put those two together, I'm able to get a probability of award. And then that's going to provide a factor for me to do all of my revenue forecasting out in the future. Well, the probability of win presumes that there is a totally objective process on the part of the government that you can predict that if A, B, and C happens because we're better than them on those things, boom, we'll get it. But it doesn't work out that way sometimes. It doesn't. But that is your best guess internally. So it's it's your people really taking an honest look at where your company is compared to your competitors. And I think that's really important that people really do look inward uh, to their own capabilities and their abilities to get those resources and and understand what's out there. Right. In other words, you can get 
much closer to the to the hole with your golf ball from the tee if you do a little bit of analytics of yourself. You're not going to get a hole in one, but you can come a lot closer to a decent putt chance. That's correct. We're speaking with Kim Coster. She's a vice president at Uninet. The implication is that maybe companies don't do this as systematically as they should. Do you have any recommendations on how do you systematically look at your strengths and your opportunities? What is it called? SWOT type of analysis, I think, is kind of what we're talking about here that the contractors could use to get better at it. One thing that we did note in the survey was that the capture process, a lot of the smaller companies didn't really have a capture process. And I think that as a part of that process, uh, the pursuit process, that people should look objectively at the competition. So I think, honestly, it just becomes a part of that uh, that overall pursuit uh, discipline that should be going on before we actually even accept that opportunity uh, into our system. And there's kind of a timing question here, too, because if you do win and then you need to start executing on something that has been funded and you knew what your human resource requirements were, then you have to get that requirement filled. And that gets back to the difficulty of hiring, onboarding, maybe initially finding the right people, except by maybe poaching them from the people that didn't win. Right. And I think that's that's one of the important things about really being able to hone in on that forecast. And that probability of award may change over time. As we get nearer to award, you know, you may have all indications that you're going to get that contract. Um, and you have a little higher probability to let your HR team know to go off and hire the skills that you need or the people that you need. And do you find that, uh, again, the survey probably gives you some indication of who's answering? Are the large firms necessarily better at this than the smaller contractors? I will tell you, definitely the um, the uh, uh, larger firms are better. They're going to have a more disciplined process up front. They're going to have a, a capture process. And so they're going to be much better at it. In fact, sometimes the big ones will just acquire who they think will give them that advantage. That, and... that's, a, that's a possibility, too. We did see that there is quite a bit of, of M&A opportunity uh, and action going on out there this, this year. Are there any exigent circumstances right now post-pandemic and given the weird political situation the country is in and so on that over the seven years you've been doing the survey have emerged? What's what's new maybe looking ahead into 24 that you might not have seen before? Well, one thing that started in 2022 was we really saw a resurgence of taking uh, DCAA looking at business systems. So there's six business systems um, and they really came in and started taking a hard look at that. In fact, uh, Director Dilley, uh, inside the report to Congress, mentions that 288 of those business systems audits were completed in 2022. So I look for more of those. We also started to see a trend towards more accounting system audits in solicitations. So, you know, have you do you have an approved accounting system? Um, that's becoming more and more criteria for winning new business. And we're speaking about the Defense Contract Audit Agency. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much a sort of a side factor in here that can blow in at any time then, can it? Yes. And so I think that's been a, a really big trend. We've seen a lot of people now focusing on other areas of business like earned value, purchasing, estimating. But still, the accounting audit is definitely uh, still the biggest one to, to be concerned about and the most significant for getting points on a solicitation. And what about uh, Labor Department and White House requirements? I'm thinking of reporting and information data gathering by the Office of Federal Contractor Compliance Programs at the uh, Labor Department, climate reporting requirements, 
they keep getting layered on. Do you think that's an emerging trend that makes people say, well, why should I bother with federal business? Well, the one thing the federal business does is it provides a very stable environment. And Christine and I were talking the other day, and we said the one thing that this report does is there are very complex issues within this federal, this government contracting space. Um, But the nice thing about it is if you look year over year, it stays pretty stable. And so that should give people confidence in coming into this market. And there's great people, um, you know, the Cone Resnicks of the world, the Uninets of the world that can help you uh, with that with that journey. So I think that no matter what is actually happening out there, that the GovCon market is still a very attractive market. It's like a trout pond that someone has thrown a whole bushel basket times 10 of trout in. You know there's fish in there. You just got to get your hook down there. That's correct. And, you know, the one thing about it, is it's not just one vertical. You know, there's multiple different kinds of things going on in the federal government contracting world all the time. And so whatever your service or your product is, you know, there's likely a a space for you in this business, in this market. Kim Coster is vice president at Uninet. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. I really enjoyed it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more of the survey results at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. uh, And that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this 
you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about 
integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.